Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, my name's JP, and it looks like I'm joining Josh and Rachel's home group. So there we go. <laughs> Um, if we've not met before, um, I'd love to uh, say hi to you afterwards, and um, so do, uh, do come and say hey. Um, uh, I'm, um, I'm married to the wonderful Emma, uh, we have two small children, and um, we live in, um, well, we would call it Top Valley, but people in Top Valley would call where we live Rise Park. Um, our neighbours call it Warren, Warren Hill, but nobody's heard of that, and um, Royal Mail reckon it's Arnold, so um, I don't really know where we live, um, somewhere in the north of Nottingham. Arnold's, there we go. Carl says it's Arnold's. Um, out of interest, why? I'll ask you after, buddy. Um, but yeah, we're starting a new series in the book of Hebrews in, in the, the New Testament, in, in the Bible, if, if you're new to the Bible. And um, it's going to take us through to, to June, actually. And, and so it might be that actually, as part of that, you, you want to read the book of Hebrews um, along with the, the preaching series. Um, and um, if you do about half a chapter of Hebrews each week, then you'll easily keep pace um, with the series. It might be that you, you want some uh, help in a sort of devotional help as, as as you go along. And um, if that's the case, I'd love to recommend this little resource here, Hebrews for Everyone uh, by Tom Wright. Um, really accessible resource. Um, each chapter is only about four pages long. Um, just uh, makes a kind of deliberate effort to explain all the kind of technical terms in there and things. And as I've um, been reading Hebrews, um, it's not the most technical, but it's wonderfully um, devotional. So um, perhaps you might want to pick one of those up. We did a social media post about that the other day if you want the, the link to it. Um, but let's begin by asking some questions uh, about the book of Hebrews, because it might be that you're, you're new to, to the book, wondering kind of what's in it. So I suppose the first thing is, well, what is Hebrews? And um, Hebrews itself, um, in chapter 13, says that it is a word of exhortation spoken briefly. And um, I suppose the fact that it's in chapter 13 uh, gives that somewhat of a kind of ironic sense. Um, if I made 13 points this morning, you would not say my message was brief. Um, but it's, it's a, a sermon that, that was preached um, to Christians and it's quite dense in places. It talks about um, a lot of Jewish religious customs of the time. And as we go through, as a preaching team, we'll, we'll try and unpack those. Um, but, but ultimately, it explains to its hearers that whatever it is that they prioritize, Jesus Christ is better. Jesus is better. And so that's why we've called the, uh, the, the series Hebrews, Jesus is Better. But in terms of some of the other questions um, that you might ask about the, the book of Hebrews, scholars have written reams and reams um, on the sort of background to the, the book of Hebrews. But in spite of all that, there's still um, well, a lack of clarity, I suppose, uh, about e exactly the context of it. So um, who wrote it, for instance? Well, uh, after thousands of years of research, uh, we don't know. Um, but what we do know is that for it to be included in the New Testament, the, the canon is the, the technical term, um, the book had to, um, had to be in use in churches um, at the time these things were, were being considered, and it had to conform to what they called the rule of faith, uh, which was like a, a sort of orthodoxy marker, and it had to also be connected in with uh, one of the apostolic figures, so sort of early leaders in the church. For Hebrews, um, that would have been Paul, um, although uh, since then uh, scholars think it's quite unlikely that Paul himself wrote this book, um, simply because uh, it, it's formed and structure and content is very different from um, some of Paul's other writings. He wrote a lot of the, the rest of the, uh, a lot of uh, other bits in the New Testament. So we, we don't really know. 
in terms of when it was written, yeah, we don't really know that either. Um, but what we do know is that um, the, the, the Jewish temple, the sort of center of all of their worship, um, was destroyed in, in 70 AD. And Hebrews talks an awful lot about this temple and yet doesn't refer to um, that, that destruction at all. So, um, so most likely written before um, that point. And, and to give a little bit of context to 70 AD, um, Paul and Peter, leaders in the early church, they, they were martyred in the early 60s. So kind of sometime in the midst of, of all of that going on. And where did it go? Guess what? We don't know. Um, but what we do know is that it is most likely that um, it, it was written to Christians who had been converted out of Judaism because the, there is so much in the book that Gentiles, i.e. those who are not Jews, just wouldn't care about. So, you know, the author's going through kind of making the point about how Jesus is better than all the old Jewish customs. If you're a Gentile, you're like, I'm a bothered, no thanks. So, um, so probably written to um, Christians converted out of Judaism. But the last question on there, why? Why was Hebrews written? And finally, we have some clarity here, hallelujah, because there's a number perhaps of cultural parallels between what the recipients of the book of Hebrews were, uh, were going through it and situations we might face today, actually. So if you would say that you are going through a particularly tough time in your life right now, whether that's um, to do with your faith or, or whether that's some kind of other reason, you know, your health or pressures at work or in your family, or maybe you're, you're asking and wrestling with questions that you feel are fundamental to the core of who you are. Well, Hebrews was written to encourage perseverance in the faith. And for their context, it, it was to Christians who were being tempted to, um, to, to give in and go back to their Judaism and all its associated customs. Maybe also you're, you're asking some of life's big questions. You know, is, is all this really true? Is Christianity really uh, the better worldview uh, and a better way of living? Well, Hebrews was written to explain why Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, representing, representing humanity, sacrificing himself for us, is so much better than anything else that the world has to offer. Because the point of the book of Hebrews, the, the answer to all of our questions actually, is that in Jesus, God has spoken definitively. And we'll have a look at chapter one in a moment, but it, it talks about, um, it's all about God's fullest and final speaking of himself. Namely that in Jesus, we have all that we need to know God and to gain access to God. You don't need a church priest to get you to God. You don't need good works in the bank to get you to God. You don't need to sort your life out. You simply need Jesus Christ to carry you into the very presence of God. And equally, the book ends with an encouragement that because Jesus is all, of, all we need, because he's supreme in every way, it says in chapter 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, let's live it out. In the book of Hebrews, God wants to speak to you. Whoever you are, whatever you are going through, whatever your circumstances, God wants to speak to you. 
Now, we shared um, on social media a, a video that um, talks about the introduction to the book of Hebrews. It's about seven minutes long. It's very accessible. If you want to know a bit more about Hebrews and what you can expect, I'd encourage you to uh, have a watch of that on our uh, social media accounts. But let's get into, um, into the Bible. So I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter one. If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If not, the words will come up on the screens. And I'm reading from the ESV. Here's what it says. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, he's still talking about the sun, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, that's the heavens and the earth, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that's angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Hebrews chapter one. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to this book that says that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, our prayer today is that we would grow to be more like you, that we would understand more of your finished, completed work in the wonderful salvation that you have granted to us. Our prayer now is that by your Holy Spirit, you would encounter us, encounter us, you would uh, illuminate these truths in our lives. And we pray that we would shine forth for you in this city that we love so dearly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the 2010s are over, and so begins the battle as to what we should call them. Do we go for the tens? Do we go for the tenties? Do we instead go for the teenies 
from 2013 and, and the in-betweenies, you know, between uh, 2010-2013. But for me, one of the interesting things of, of the last decade was the transition of the epicenter of social media from Facebook to Instagram. And so I have been trying to get used to Instagram. Now, this is a particular phenomenon uh, uh, amongst uh, uh, those of Gen Z or Gen Z, so uh, those born sort of 95 onwards. And um, I had no idea how to pronounce this. Gen Z, Gen Z. Seems like opinion is split. So I thought, I will ask on Instagram. And of course, these guys will know. Trouble is, I didn't really know how to ask a question on Instagram. So I went from a preach prep room back into the office, and I was like, guys, how do I ask a question on Instagram? And they're like, no, you, you need to put a photo on there, JP. That's what Instagram's all about. And uh, I thought, well, how, how but I, I want to get some question in it. And someone piped up, oh, would you, you could put a poll on your story. No idea what that means. <laughs> so I went back, I had to think, I wrote my question down on a piece of paper, I took a photo of it, and I put the photo on Instagram. There we go. <laughs> so I've been trying to get used to Instagram. And I'm not sure if the phenomenon that I'm about to describe happened on Instagram or just on Facebook, where the cool kids of the 80s hang out and preceding decades. But, but the way that most people seem from my social media to want to look back on the last decades is to review the change in their personal appearance. You seen this on your feeds? Start out kind of here I was in 2010, and look how I've changed now in, in 2019. And so for a little bit of fun, I thought I would join in and show you mine today. So here is me in 2010, and here I am in 2019, embarrassingly wearing the same shirt. But I'm sure you will agree that the picture on the left needs a little bit of explanation, right? Someone does. Thank you. What was going on was I was the student worker um, here at Grace Church. We were doing a student night out uh, where you had to come as something beginning with G or C for Grace Church. So I uh, came as a clown. I did my own face painting, which as you can see went horrendously wrong. I looked way more scary than I had intended to look. And um, what I also didn't quite get right was the fact that uh, on the same night as this student social, there was a Grace Church home group leaders meeting. And uh, I was a home group leader. So I thought, I know, I'll just get ready as a clown. I'll go to this home group leaders meeting. And then I'll walk from our offices in St. Anne's, nonetheless, into town, dressed as a clown, and arrive in one piece. And that didn't really work either. There were some people at the home group leaders meeting that didn't know who I was. They're like, it's just some clown turned up in the room. <laughs> like, who, who are you and why are you here? Anyway, we had a fun night. I ended up getting banned from one of the rooms in the club because there was someone in there scared of clowns. Um, but that is my own fault. But the point of this, and there is a point, is that that photo does not make sense without context, does it? I, I hope it is obvious that I am not a clown. <laughs> I might be a Stoke City fan, but I am not a clown. And, and similarly, when you read this Hebrews chapter 1 and you hear the author talking all about angels, it doesn't make sense without the context, does it? It, it just seems a little bit weird. And so you have to ask why. Why is the author talking so much about this subject of angels? And there's two things here that, that can help us, uh, uh, help us kind of understand this. The first one is that in Jewish thought of the day, 
It was angels who had mediated, that is brought, the old covenants that the Jews loved so much. So that's the, the Old Testament promises with all the accompanying laws and commandments. They brought that to Moses. It was angels who had declared to the Jewish people this precious body of promises that made them so distinct from all the nations around them. And that's what chapter two goes on to talk about. And so angels had a very special role in Jewish thought of the time. They, they represented God, if you like, and they were held in very high esteem. But the second thing that can help us to understand this is that although we can't be sure exactly who it was that first heard this sermon preached or who it then got sent to, scholars have detected um, uh, amongst the recipients the influence of what they call the Qumran community. Now, I hear you ask, what on earth is the Qumran community, JP? And so let's go all the way back to 1947, okay? George VI is on the throne. World War II has just ended. Forrest had just had a disappointing mid-table finish in the equivalent of the championship, whilst County languished in the lower leagues. So I'm pleased a lot has changed since those days. And out in Israel, a shepherd boy is out doing his thing. And he picks up a stone and he throws this stone. He's, he's kind of next to the Dead Sea. And um, he hears this stone go into a cave and, and hears some kind of smashing sound. So he goes into this cave and, and, he, and he finds all these vases in this cave which seem like they've got some sort of manuscripts in them. And so he, he goes and tells someone, the authorities get involved, and they, they excavate this whole site. And what they find in, in 11 caves ar around the Dead Sea is some of the oldest manuscripts, uh, some of the oldest copies of the, the Old Testament uh, that exist in, in the world today. And commentaries on kind of Jewish writings of the time. But they testify to this community that lived around these caves that were called the Essenes, the Qumran community that lived in this place, Qumran. And with these guys, the Essenes, they, they, had, they considered that mainstream Judaism, sort of back in Jerusalem, was a bit too liberal. They'd kind of gone a bit wayward. And so they, they withdrew and, and decided to kind of set up camp by the Dead Sea, live themselves as a community. And what happened was they started to get their own interpretations of some of the Jewish writings. And one of the things that they had come to think was that there was not one but two messianic figures that they expected to be sent by God to bring about their salvation and their freedom. One of them would be a king, to rule their people and make their nation great. And one of them would be a priest to represent all the people before God. But both of those figures, they thought, would be subject to angels. Such was the high place, the, 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 the high esteem with which angels were held. And so what the writer is at pains to point out here, and he does so using seven Old Testament references, is that Jesus is far superior to these angels. He has a, a superior status, for starters. It says in, in verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, or again, I'll be to him a father, and he'll be to me a son. The point is that Jesus is the eternal, uncreated Son of God. 
The angels, are they just servants? It says in verse 14, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, people get all sorts of wacky ideas about who angels are and how as Christians we're meant to relate to them. But one of the scholars, Raymond Brown, puts it helpfully. He says, angels have an exultant ministry in heaven, that is, they help facilitate worship, and a supportive ministry on earth. So Jesus has a superior status. But he has a superior authority too. It says in verse six, again, when he, that's God, brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, the son of God, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And again, verse 13, to which of the angels has he, that's God, ever said, sit at my right hands until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's speaking of Jesus Christ, who, as Pete referred to in his interpretation to Jeremy's tongue, is seated at the right hands of the majesty on high. It's a position of authority, the ultimate position of authority. But he has a superior existence too. He is the eternal, uncreated, flawless king. And it says in verse seven, of the angels, he, that's God, says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So he's saying, yeah, angels, they just kind of come and go at God's commands. But of the son, Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter, of course, being the staff that the the king held, symbolizing his power. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness, and therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And anointing was what they did to priests and what they did to kings. And so he's saying here, you know, you guys who thought there'd be two separate figures, one priest, one king, Jesus fulfills both roles. A superior status, a superior authority, and superior existence to angels. And goes on to talk about how uh, uh, God the Father, through God the Son, founded the earth from the beginning. And though uh, the heavens and the earth one day will be wrapped up, he says of Jesus, you are the same, and your years will have no end. Do you think, well, great, Jesus is better than angels. So what? And I'm sure we were all thinking it. Because it's not as though, is it, that angel worship is a particularly common pastime in our society, is it? And if, if I met someone and I was like, what are you into? And they, they said angel worship. I think I would have the same reaction as when, when I meet someone who's into Warhammer. <laughs> as in, I have no idea what to say. Like, which is your favorite one? Or, or, or something like that. But actually, you could say that about lots of the rest of Hebrews as well. It looks about how Jesus is better than the old Jewish writings, the Torah. How he's better than their their great hero, Moses, than the land, Canaan, than their cultural commentators, the prophets, and their priestly and sacrificial worship system. You could look at that and think, well, what difference does that make to me? How does that change my Monday morning? Whereas the, the angelic might not be a, a, particularly, a particular cultural narrative for us, the search for the spiritual certainly is. 
You need only to go along to Goose Fair in October on, on Forest Wreck and see the, the palm readers and the psychics and the fortune tellers set their stalls up and, and people queuing to get in, desperate to kind of find out about their life. Or you hear people talk about touching wood, don't you? Or, or fearing tempting fate. Like fundamentally, these are spiritual desires that the forces of the world would be good to me. You know, we might not look to prophets to tell us how to sacrifice on an altar at a worship temple, but we do have our societal prophets, don't we? The arts, popular culture, social media. These things promote a message that we imbibe. And we do have our altars on which we would sacrifice other things. My rights, my freedoms, my career, my money, my choices, my kids, my comfort. And we have our places of worship too. The city ground, Rock City, the office with workers staying late every single night. The bedroom. You see, these Jewish things that Hebrews is talking about, to coin a modern phrase, were, were simply what they were into. You know, that was their life, their, their priorities, their values. And what the author wants to say is that Jesus is the truest and most final satisfaction of all that underlines these values. This is the author who uses the word better of Jesus more times in Hebrews than the whole of the rest of the New Testament does. And so the question is for us, how is Jesus better? How is Jesus better? And using the, um, the titles that um, one of the commentators, Raymond Brown, uses in his commentary, he said, Jesus is God's prophetic voice to begin with. He says this, long ago, it was verse one, Many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. You see, God was revealed partially in the Old Testament. And he's revealed partially in the, the beauty of creation and in the image that humans bear of him in, uh, and, and the resulting desires that we have for relationship and for community and to, to, to create and to tend and to nurture. Those things reflect God. But in Jesus, God has spoken fully, decisively, finally, and perfectly. Because all of your questions can be answered in him. He's God's son and heir. Verse two talks about. And in, 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 in giving the giving of the son, the love of God is, is marked out as so much better than the self-interest of, the, of the, the, the palm reader or, or the career or the worship of the sports team. You know, those things just say, here I am, give to me. The love of God says, here I am, let me give to you. So if you want to be convinced that Jesus really cares about you, God the Son came to create a way to God for you. 
And if you want to be convinced that Jesus knows how you feel, well, Jesus was made like us and came amongst us to experience our struggles. And if you need to be convinced that Jesus has a better eternal future for you, it says in verse two that he is the heir of all things and now says that you are a co-heir with him if you trust in him. Maybe you need to be convinced that Jesus knows how you are truly wired amidst questions of of sexuality or or mental health or, or identity. Well, verse two says that the whole world, including you, was created through the very one who was given for you. He is God's creative agent. Maybe you want to be convinced that he's worth it, that he really is worth worshiping. Well, verse three says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the brightest of God's brightness. He's, he's the spectacle of his splendor. He is the grandeur of his greatness. And one day when you see him, your automatic reaction will be to bow the knee in worship and adoration because he is God's personified glory. Maybe you need to be convinced that God's not distant, that you can know what he's like. Well, it says in verse three that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He's God's perfect revelation. You know, the Greek word there is character. It's not, not the English word, the Greek word, character. He's the character of God. It, it, it comes from the, the, the world of coin production, actually where hot metal would be stamped with a pattern which it then continues to bear. In Jesus, God the Father's very nature is precisely reproduced in the metal of the Son's human nature. Maybe you need to be convinced that he can keep you going amidst pressure or sickness or disappointment. Well, verse three says that he is God's cosmic sustainer who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or maybe lastly, you need to be convinced that your sin and your mistakes and your mess and the things that nobody knows about will not hold you back from him. Well, Jesus Christ is God's unique sacrifice who, as verse three says, has made purification, that means cleansing for sins, to present you blameless, pure, holy, spotless, righteous before the Father. Truly, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And you know, over the last couple of months as I've been um, studying Hebrews and and you've seen this morning and we'll continue to in the next few weeks. There's some technicalities to it. You have to kind of wrestle with the meaning and just kind of coming out my study first thing in the morning, just the concepts buzzing around. Do you know what stayed with me? Jesus is better. And every time I faced a choice as to how to act, the phrase Jesus is better. And you know, I, get, I get lots of stuff wrong at home, but I get some stuff right too. And in the last couple of months, 
Every time I've made a decision to consciously serve my wife or love my kids or, or, or kind of do something that honors God, there is a very high possibility that the phrase Jesus is better has been going round and round in my head, that the way of Jesus is better, that the claims of Jesus on my life are better, that the person of Jesus is better than any other voice that would seek to shout loud for my attention. And folks, you, you know, we, we don't live radically for God unless we, we know and keep reminding ourselves that Jesus is better. If you're a, a young couple exploring marriage together and you know what the Bible says uh, uh, about sex being for marriage between a man and a woman in that committed marriage relationship, you don't live saving yourself for marriage unless you know that Jesus is better. You know, if you're in the office and you're getting earfuls from every single side and unjust bosses and clients coming back to you demanding things instantly, it is hard to have a godly perspective unless you know that Jesus is better. It's hard to take courageous steps in giving or fasting or church planting unless you know that Jesus is better. Hard to think about how God sees chronic illness or times when you just get sideswiped by life unless truly you know that Jesus is better. I really want to encourage you guys this morning to keep in your mind that phrase, Jesus is better. You know, some of you will be in times of life where it's harder to give extended devotional time over and you, you worship through the looking after your kids or the caring for a relative some of you will face the kind of, yeah, I give myself in the morning and some time to kind of study the Bible, but by four or five o'clock, I've kind of forgotten some of what it was talking about. You need to encapsulate this. Jesus is better. I would absolutely love it if this Wednesday or this Thursday, by the Holy Spirit, he has deposited this phrase in your mind and in your heart that Jesus is better because this is how we change a city this is how, how we honor our God. It's one step at a time of every time we face that question, something we don't want to do. And yet by the Spirit's encouragement, he is our encourager after all, that Jesus is better. So where in your life do you need to remind yourself of that? And maybe even this message has, has provoked you to think, well, is Jesus really better? And I'd love just to reiterate the, what you heard in the announcements about the Alpha course, uh, that, that course that runs over several weeks, and essentially asks this question, is Jesus better? And through friendship and food, just gives you a chance to chat it over. You can pick flies up on the way out. But what Hebrews shows us is the absolutely fundamental need to continually remind ourselves to persevere amidst the difficulties and amidst the disappointments and amidst the doubts of life because of the surpassing truth of knowing that Jesus Christ is better in every regard. Why don't we stand together? Let's have the band up.